0: Greetings and welcome back to New Books in History. As you know, at New Books in History, we scour the globe for exciting new history books the world needs to know about, and we interview their authors. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Matthew Brian Gillis, uh, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, who's just written a very interesting new book called Heresy and Dissent in the Carolingian Empire, The Case of Gottschalk of Orbeid. It was just published very recently by Oxford University Press. Now, in the popular imagination, heresy belongs to the Christian Middle Ages in much the way that the Crusades do or courtly culture does. Non specialists in the medieval field may assume that the problem of heresy always existed uniformly throughout the period. But as Matthew Gillis shows us in Heresy and Descent in the Carolingian Empire, in the age of Charlemagne and his descendants, heretics were largely seen either as distant foreign dangers or the legendary villains of ancient church lore. That is, until around 840 of the Common Era, when one Gottschalk of Orbe began preaching what he called twin predestination. Gottschalk was heavily influenced by Augustine, who had argued that long before time began, God already ordained who would be among the elect and who among the damned. Gottschalk's twin predestination theology made him into a figure Professor Gillis refers to as a, quote, religious outlaw, a heretic in the flesh, and the Carolingian Empire's foremost religious dissenter. Well, that's pretty exciting, Professor Gillis, and uh, I'm very excited to have a chance to catch up with you today. We never have a chance to catch up.
1: That's right. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's a great pleasure to be here to talk about the book.
0: That's wonderful. Well, let's get right to it. Um you know, I usually start out by asking people, and I'll ask you the same question, to tell us a little bit about yourself and sort of explain, in, in your words, how you came to this project, at least in the sense of your sort of, you know, um, your scholarly background, that sort of thing.
1: Yes. So uh, when I went to, the, to study medieval history at the University of Virginia, I had two, two main interests. The first was the Carolingian era, the eighth to ninth centuries the, in, in Western and Central Europe, uh, known mostly for Emperor Charlemagne. And uh, the reason I was interested in it was because this is, this is really the formative moment in medieval European history, but it's also the sort of least famous part of medieval history, right? This is not when the Crusades happened and all that sort of thing. So I was interested in looking at these, this beginning time or this formative time. The other interest was the thought of the church father Augustine, because uh, anybody who knows something about Augustine knows that he has cast a mighty long shadow uh, through through the history of the world, um, and that shadow was probably most potent in the in the era of of the Carolingian Empire. And I wanted to somehow put these two things together uh, in order to see see how that worked at that time, how the, how the Carolingian rulers and thinkers sort of took on his thoughts, made it their own, made it into sometimes something entirely different than, than what he had said back in his day. So that was really how I came to this. And when I, when you, when you, when you bring two things together like that, you have to find a theme or, or a person or, or what have you to make that research project happen and it ended up being Gottschalk, Gottschalk of Orbe, and just to sort of to to give a quick story about how I really found this fellow, and and basically thought there is no way I am not going to write about this guy, <laughs> which which was I was in a I was in a graduate seminar, and I and I had to write a paper. And so uh, I had, I knew about Gottschalk and uh, later I can tell a little bit more about him, but I knew about this fellow as an important interpreter of Augustine from the ninth century. So I picked one of his writings, uh, a confession of faith, which was written in very beautiful, but you know, not necessarily easy Latin to read. And I just started reading it and it was, it was lovely. It was very um, moving spiritually and, 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 all those sorts of things. But when I got towards the end of this text, He suddenly started saying something that I had never seen before, which was to claim that he would undergo a deadly ordeal, a sort of trial by fire, if you will, in order to to prove that his ideas were right. Because at this point, he was already in trouble with the church. He was already condemned as a heretic. So what he said was that they should line up four big barrels, fill them with boiling water, oil, pitch, and wax and he would climb in and out of these babies and and be pulled out of them by the right hand of god and emerged completely unscathed completely unhurt by this and everyone would be amazed and he would drive the heresy of his enemies out of the land and save the whole world basically from evil when i read that i thought who on earth is this person i have to know more
0: Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like quite a story. And I'm sure that it was attractive. I mean, when you're, when you're in graduate school and you're searching for something that can sustain your interest for a number of years while you do a lengthy research project and and write a lengthy, um, piece of work, having something like that in view has got to be pretty exciting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And surprising in this case.
0: And actually, you have a beautiful on the, on the, one of the cover images on your book is, I think, is it not of this, of this, uh, proposed ordeal?
1: Well, uh, it's certainly related. So, so it's an image from the Stuttgart Psalter, which is uh, a book of Psalms from the ninth century that was around when, when the shock lived. And, uh, one of the illustration that I picked out is, is several fellows sitting in barrels of, of, of burning or boiling liquids and looking rather not too worried about it, actually. So uh, I think I think the image is actually of martyrs, and this is what Gottschalk I, I think believed uh, he was doing. Was he was a living martyr in the ninth century, rather than a dead one uh, from the early church. And so the image, the image really, um, I was so glad to find it, so I could put it on the book and sort of put some color and 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 some faces to this to this whole project because there are no. Images or pictures of Gottschalk, and so the whole time I've never really known, you know, what he looked like.
0: Yeah, uh, that's that's very interesting. I'm sure you have some kind of picture in your mind, though, and and those uh, those vats must have must have helped in some ways. Let's uh, let's talk. Uh, let's let's try to explain a little bit now, if we could. Uh, why, maybe maybe by explaining the title of your book, Heresy and Descent in the Carolingian Empire, maybe you could get us a little bit into what it was that made, uh, such a, such a very strange on the one hand and on the other hand, rather compelling figure. Um, can, can you talk about the title of the book a bit?
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, as anyone who's tried to figure out a title for a book knows, you have to be happy with it, but you also have to put as many important concepts in the title so that people will know what it is. Right. So, so, um, there's a very, um, important and well developed conversation going on uh, among uh, european medievalists about heresy and religious dissent from the time period after gottschalk so really starting in the 11th century when when popular heresies become become uh, a serious uh, issue uh, in the church as well as other popular religious movements. And so I picked heresy and dissent um, in order to help insert uh, my study into that conversation and, and thereby insert the Carolingian world into that ongoing conversation. Of course, Something is heresy or religious dissent based on one's perspective, and so I wanted both of those terms in there because I think Gottschalk certainly saw himself as a religious dissenter, and there were many in, in European history throughout the Middle Ages, so I, I wanted to get him on the radar of other of other people, and, of course, uh, I wanted to get the Carolingian Empire on, on the radar of other medievalists, but also to, to maybe make Carolingian scholars think a little bit more about this wider discussion of heresy and religious dissent uh, that's going on, and, and, and to think, to understand that they have a role, that we have a role to play in this conversation, especially since the Carolingian Empire is, is, is the world that created the blueprint of, of religion and, and politics and, and society and culture, in many ways for the the Europe that then did persecute many heretics centuries later. So in in a way that's what I was really working at with with the title and of course I also had to get the name of this fellow in there. And um, just to tell you very briefly a few things about him, Uh, he he was born sometime in the first decade of the ninth century and he died in the late uh, part of, or in the late 860s or maybe even 870. His name Gottschalk means servant of God in in German, which is of course an interesting name for somebody who spends his life causing religious controversies and then is you know condemned as a heretic. Uh, he's called Gottschalk of Orbe because Orbe was a monastery in 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 what is today France, and this is a monastery that Gottschalk, according to my research at least, chose to join uh, of his own free will. When he was he was somewhat older in the in the eight thirties, this fellow uh, Gottschalk, caused all this trouble in in the ninth century, and then in many ways disappeared. Right, he disappeared and wasn't wasn't discovered again until the seventeenth century. Hmm. Right, during the period of the Reformation. Hmm. So that's kind of a strange thing, right? Uh, that someone disappears off the map and then reappears, and and there were you know there were many discussions going on about what is the right way to practice christianity in the 16th 17th century and 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 people who were sympathetic to gottschalk's ideas his augustinian ideas about salvation grace predestination found him they found his writings and they started publishing him uh, pu- publishing these texts saying look at here's somebody from from the medieval era who who agrees with us and who was persecuted as a result, right? So there was a kind of identification with his his writings in the 17th century. And after this point, Gottschalk became a part of ongoing religious debates among European uh, Christian uh, polemicists, theologians, and others. This is especially true in, in Germany. Uh, in the 19th century and early 20th century, uh, Gottschalk there was usually called um, Gottschalk the Saxon, Gottschalk der Saxe, because he originally came from 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 Saxony uh, in modern day Germany. So he's a, he's a person actually who has who has had more than one name, uh, you know, among modern scholars. And and Gottschalk was very interesting to these. 19th and early 20th century theologians because they, they thought, how can we be German, right? In an age of nationalism and even national socialism, how can we be Germans and still Christians? So Gottschalk sort of appeared as a, as a figure for them to think with and to understand, um, understand their, their own times, right? And and um, some of that scholarship was is very important and very interesting, and some of it kind of makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up uh, when you read it, especially from the 1930s and 40s. Yeah. some of the claims yes. yes of course some of the claims made are, are quite shocking about him um, and it wasn't then until the 60s of the 20th century that Gottschalk i would say was treated as a as a historical figure as a political figure and believe it or not the the fellow who figured that out was a guy named Siegfried Epperlein, an East German historian who wrote a book about various kinds of resistance to Gottschalk or excuse me kinds of resistance to to authority in the Carolingian world and he had a chapter about Gottschalk and when i read that i was i was quite amazed at, at how innovative he was this upper line uh in the 60s and you know things have then developed from there
0: it's very interesting what you're saying and i i like this this kind of history of the history of knowing about gottschalk that you've just offered to us because You get a sense of the meaning of this figure for many different generations of people, uh, many different generations of polemicists, as you said, but also of historians. I wonder if let's 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 now back up just a bit and take Gottschalk back to the moment in which he, in fact, lived and talk about his meaning in that moment and talk a bit too, uh, maybe if you would, as you develop that. Talk with us a bit about what twin predestination was and why it was such a foul heresy.
1: Right, right. So, um, well, certainly, Gutshok uh, didn't start out wanting to be a heretic, or maybe even a religious dissenter, and and so it was quite an undertaking to try to reconstruct his life. And so, I, I wouldn't say my book is a biography, uh, as much as maybe in some ways a kind of microhistory, but also taking a lot of cues from from um, from studies of individuals from the ancient church, such as Peter Brown's book on Augustine or or the medieval church. Uh, but you know, in the case of Gottschalk, there are huge mo or there are huge gaps uh, in his life where I really don't have any information about him. So reconstructing him was, was quite tricky. And really uh, what it ended up being is, is tracking him from one controversy to another, and then trying to fill in the gaps by understanding the, the context of the world in which he lived and, and the meaning of, of what people said about him and, and what he said about himself and, and others. So uh, in, in some ways, I guess, you know, I can I can give a very brief overrun of his story, just a few interesting details. You know, he starts out as, as a monk living in uh, the monastery of Fulda in modern day Germany and in, in the late eight twenties, he decides he doesn't want to be a monk anymore. And this was a quite a strange, strange thing to happen. And there was a great lo- legal case in which he went before a, a church council and said, "My my abbot, whose name was Robinus Maurus, which means the dark raven, which is frankly pretty awesome." Uh, he said, Robinus Maurus made me become a monk, and I didn't want to." And and to make a long story short, the bishops at this council agreed and they they let him go. They let him leave the monastery of Fulda. And and so in in some ways what I think is fascinating about Goshok is when he appears on the on the stage of history, it's making trouble for somebody important in the world. Because this Robinus Maurus was a very famous, very respected intellectual and and abbot. And here comes this guy who frankly, even though he came from a noble family, was not anybody important yet. And he caused this great embarrassment and humiliation to to this um, this Robinus, this dark raven. So this this sort of started uh, this sort of set the stage for Gottschalk's life. He he, I argue in the book that he wanted to have a, a career as a as a cleric. I, I think he wanted to be a missionary. There were many missionaries moving out out of the Carolingian Empire in in the eight twenties, eight thirties, going to Scandinavia, going to to central uh, Central Eastern and South Southeastern Europe. And I think he wanted to to be one of these people and and probably eventually to become a bishop. So the story traces then how how he tries to make that happen. And the thing to understand about the, the Carolingian world is that you don't get to become anybody without the help of a lot of people, and without the help especially of powerful people. So he, he sought out other patrons, because he burned a bridge, with obviously, with, with this abbot of his, and, and he sought out other patrons. And sometimes he chose well, and sometimes he chose poorly, and got himself caught up in, in other controversies um, in the 830s, and, and eventually decided to become a monk once more and it's in the 830s where this twin predestination thing seems to to come along so how to, how do you explain that um oh as a side note one thing i've tried to do in my book because i think it's very important for historians to study theology as well as theologians to study it and and i I've, I've i've tried to move away from expected language Um, expected historical theological language in order to describe what, what Gottschalk was talking about and his opponents and friends. And so, so uh, not only using his own language, but also to move away from categories that are sort of um, categories of, of, theologians and not historians. So twin predestination is, is actually the word that Gottschalk picked to describe what he thought was fundamental to human experience in, in the cosmos. And so from Gutschel's point of view, he, he looked at the world from a, a God's eye perspective. In other words, God can see historically in time, but is also not bound by it, and so can see outside of time. And so when when God could see into time, see what people were good, what people would accept, divine help, right, in order to be saved, right, and be freed of not only their original sin, but sins throughout their life. And those people who wouldn't, who were in Gottschalk's eyes, utterly wicked rebels against Christ and rotten to the core. And those were the reprobate. Those were the damned, uh, whereas the others were the elect. Now, a lot of Augustine um, wrote, wrote, and especially later in his life, this kind of theology, but he didn't use the term twin predestination. This was something developed by um, uh, a later thinker, Isidore of Seville. And so what you have with Gottschalk is he's, he's creating, he's developing a theology out of, out of Augustinian thought, but also out of the thought of other people. And he's kind of putting it together in his own way. And what, it, what I found so fascinating about him is not only that he did so, but then what he did with his ideas. So in the 830s, Gottschalk gets ordained to be a priest, which was necessary to be a successful missionary because uh, priests could, could preach um, and also uh, administer the sacraments for those who would, would convert. And. And he starts not only preaching straightforward Christian, Carolingian Christian doctrine, which said that anybody who converted to Christianity and was baptized, well, their free will was restored and it was basically up to them, right, to achieve salvation. They did this collectively in the empire, in the Carolingian empire, by um, listening to what the clergy told them to do by um, accepting correction when they were told they were wrong or were sinning and lamenting their, their errors and and all this sort of thing. But God God changed, changed this in, in, in his preaching in his message. And he said, Christ did not die for all baptized Christians. Now imagine what that would sound like in a world where basically you're told as long as you do what's right, um, You know, you can make it right to to ultimate salvation. And of course, salvation uh, in the afterlife was linked to prosperity and and happiness in the present day in, in this world. So here's a guy who comes along and says, more or less, everything you thought was true isn't. You have to have special grace. You have to be picked by God who's outside of time, because otherwise Christ didn't die for you. And Christ doesn't want you to get to heaven because you're evil pretty scary right
0: it must have been very shocking
1: yeah and and the thing I learned about this Gottschalk is, is that he wanted it to be. He was trying to scare people into accepting his ideas. And I don't have a lot of writings of his own from, from these late 830s or, or the early 840s when he was kind of off the leash running around in, in places like Italy and, and southeastern Europe. He, he traveled among the Croats, among the Bulgars, all sorts of people talking about this stuff. And he seems to have been a sanctioned missionary by certain uh, officials in the empire – uh, uh, I don't have a lot of his writings from the time, but later he describes how you should argue with people. And he was ruthless. He would, he would bombard people with questions. He would tell people who were reading his texts, they, when they say this, then you have to ask them this. When you, they say that, then you ask them that. In other words, basically assaulting people with, with theological arguments. And his besides that part of it and an aggressive stance – Which was, you know, Carolingian missionaries were seeking always to undermine the ideas of of those they were trying to convert. But Gottschalk was particularly aggressive. And he used, uh, especially against other Christian thinkers, he used syllogisms, right, are logical arguments, three piece arguments in order to convince them that they were wrong. And he was quite creative in how he invented these syllogisms, maybe taking a passage from the Bible, then maybe from a church father like Augustine, then coming up with his own conclusion right to it. Um, And he, he says that this kind of argument is something that people cannot escape from. And so he was very smart and knew, knew his you know, biblical authorities, he knew his, his church authorities, and he knew how to argue, and he wasn't afraid to do so. And pretty soon he found himself arguing with bishops. And I have to say, if you're a priest in the Carolingian Empire, you are not supposed to argue with bishops. But he did it anyway.
0: Yes, and, is the, and this is why I suppose you call him a religious outlaw, or is that why?
1: Well, I I do, right? So um, I do partly for that, right? Because he he didn't care. He understood exactly the rules of the world in which he he grew up in, that, you know, in order to become a bishop, you have to be favored by bishops and they they cultivate you. You do not turn on them and attack them. And he knew all of that. And there were some bishops who favored his ideas and and sought to help him at, at certain times. But he knew what he was doing. And then, so Just to to move on the story a little bit further, uh, his old uh, abbot and lifelong enemy, the Dark Raven, Robinus Maurus, found out what he was doing, and he started moving to get this Gottschalk in trouble. And eventually, Robinus Maurus himself became a very important bishop, and Gottschalk found himself standing before a church council. Uh, in the city of Mainz, in the year 848, where he was condemned for, for heresy for his ideas, they, the bishops there listened to to Rabanus Maurus, their archbishop, and and, then, and they condemned Gottschalk. And Gottschalk's response to this was to just keep on doing what he did, even though he was beaten severely um, as a wayward, wandering, lawless monk, and as a disrespectful um, um, subordinate. And nevertheless, he kept on doing what what he was doing before. And so this is how I decided, you know, he was um, declared a heretic. He saw himself as a religious dissenter. But I think those terms kind of fall short to describe what this guy was trying to do. He was trying to create scandal on purpose. He was trying to cause controversy on purpose, which makes him, in my mind – um, a religious outlaw, right? He's someone who's trying to upset the order and, and using all the tools that people who uphold the order, um, use, but from the other side, right? And, and after he's condemned again the year after, um, in 849, and from that point on, he stays imprisoned in a monastery, uh, for the rest of his life. And yet, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. Well, and, and and so from that point on he has underground supporters in that in the monasteries OBA in, in modern day France uh, who smuggle um, parchment into him in their in their sleeves of, uh, of their clothing and, and ink and pens and he writes things down little pamphlets and they take them out again and they and they smuggle them to other monasteries and pretty soon he has a secret readership. He's like an underground teacher or or sort of uh, something like that, right? And the bishops are saying, no, you can't listen to this guy. He's evil. His ideas are wrong. He's actually a servant of Satan in disguise of a holy man and all that sort of thing. But some of them like his ideas better than those of the bishops who they think are oppressive and unfair. And so he, he continues to this outlawed behavior for the rest of his life until he dies.
0: I, I hope you'll forgive me as a modern as a modern historian, as a historian of 20th century Europe and of Germany um, in particular. I hope you'll forgive me for saying that what you've described sounds highly ideological to me. I know that's not the right way of thinking about it, but I wonder what you what your response is to me saying that. I mean, someone being willing to endure what this guy ultimately endured, um, as one learns about in your book, and as I'm sure you'll tell us more, Um so it's, you know, the commitment, the level of commitment to his ideas, of course, one understands, too, that the level of commitment to these ideas has to do with one's own salvation and the salvation of others. And that that's a deeply important thing. But from 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 my point of view, you know, as a 20th century historian, that's what it sounds like.
1: Right. Well, it certainly is is ideological. And um so so Gatshok was. Utterly committed to, to his message, he believed that he saw the truth of the cosmos, right, these, these revelations, because God had given him the grace to see it. And that he never uh, uh, gave up his ideas was also down to grace, right? So in other words, Gottschalk, and this is a bit more or less what you're suggesting, um, Gottschalk could not give up his ideas without giving up salvation. It was impossible, so his his um reading of his condemnations and and the bishops who just looked at him and thought he was frankly a lunatic and and a diabolical agent was uh, to to be confirmed in his views that he was right right so so in order to to be um, among the elect in Gottschalk's point of view is more or less to be a persecuted person in in the ninth century, and he would echo. Things that you know his description of of this fiery ordeal I mentioned earlier is more or less modeled on a, a um, earlier martyr tale that happened in um, was a, alleged to have happened uh, um, to a couple of martyrs who were in the nearby city of soissons that 's not actually historically what what occurred, but that was the memory of these martyrs. Fate, right? And they survived, you know, suffering um, these 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 punishments and um, and and so forth. And and so Gottschalk was modeling his behavior on um, on on martyr behavior. But the the Carolingian bishops were not interested in, in executing him as as later medieval heretics would be executed because their view of the world was different than 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 you know the view of inquisitors from the, the 13th century and 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 further. Because basically they preserved order in the church through coercive – and this is what I argue in the book – coercive reform, right? They wanted to correct people, remove their errors, and and help them be free of sin because not only did that help that person uh, achieve salvation, but it also freed the empire from the taint of sin because sin was like – they used very – Um, natural imagery to describe sin, right? It's a virus, it's an illness, it it brings nausea to the empire, it brings sickness and worms that you have to be vomited out of you. And so Goshock was a disease and he was quarantined uh, in a monastery and put away for for the um, protection of everyone else, but they didn't execute him because they wanted to reform him. So his beatings were about being reformed, his imprisonment was about beating uh, being uh, reformed, but he just never took to it right because of his what today we would call his ideological stamp or a stand which he simply refused to abandon
0: that's, that's very interesting thank you uh, I wonder let, let's talk a little bit you you, you led into something that's a, a, a very interesting to me intriguing aspect of your book, which is the larger political context in which Gottschalk is having these controversies or these debates uh, with various ecclesiastical authorities. So there's a larger political context in which this fits. And I wonder if you and, you, and you sort of began to allude to it. And I wonder if you would develop that a little bit and talk about the larger, you know, arguments of the book.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's a great question. It's, it's a very critical to, to his career and, and, and his uh, effect on, on, on his, his time. So, um, there, up until the year 840, um, the Carolingian Empire in Gottschalk's lifetime is is united. Right there are there is the the emperor, Emperor Louis the First Charlemagne, but then Louis the Pious, but also sub kings. You know the sons of Louis the Pious who who are also kings. And even though there are rebellions in the 830s, the empire stays together. But when the, Louis the Pious dies in 840, his sons fight over the empire, and the result is, within a few years, uh, the empire has been divided up between the separate kings and, and, and an emperor. And now we have a, a divided Frankish realm uh, in which there is a lot of unease. Because the Franks have always thought that you know God is favoring them, um, they are successful, they created their empire because they were pious, because they were reformed, because they were... They were, they were saving um, not only Europe from, from sin, but themselves as well. And suddenly, they've decided to kill one another, to, to brutalize their own empire instead of other people. And, and in the 840s, when Gottschalk is really um, preaching this message of twin predestination and that Christ did not die for everybody, is a time of anxiety in their world because they're asking, what have we done? Breaking up this empire. What have we done? Killing each other, right? And then suddenly the Vikings start pouring into um, Francia and attacking, and that seems to be evidence that the, that God is punishing them, and that now they're kind of living in a in a in a fallen age. And this this pattern continues throughout the rest of, of Gottschalk's life. So if you think about it. You know, there, there, there are competing Carolingian kingdoms instead of one unified one. There's anxiety about the, the sins that have been committed and whether or not they can be atoned for. And here comes this guy saying, well, some of you are going to hell and there's not a thing you can do about it. And to some, that was a message that made sense, right? Because Gotchok's real point, I believe, was that only with absolute humility, only with a sense that there's no way you can get to heaven without divine grace, only by accepting that uh, can, can you get there, right? So uh, ultimately, and this, is, this was Augustine's argument all along. Um, so I, I think Gottschalk saw his message ultimately as one of hope, but people had to be scared into seeing it that way. They had to be humbled, and that's why he delivered it the way that he did. But to others, it was a message of terror, in a time, a message that created more disorder instead of helping the, the church rebuild the order that had existed before. And so, so, um, so that's where the tension is, right? That is Gottschalk actually telling us something that will help us or is he uh, an evil person who's bringing more danger into our world? And obviously, um, people of great power and influence mostly agreed that was, was was a problem. Whereas people who were not important saw the the bishops and others as the actual problem.
0: Uh, that is so interesting. Uh, can you? T- why was that? Do you think?
1: Well, I think um, I think one important development is that in the ninth century, bishops are really trying to assert their their authority as a separate order from. From um, the king um, as and as kind of the ultimate uh, um, arbiters of, of what is correct and incorrect in 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 the Carolingian world. A lot of the people who were against them seem to have been monks. Uh, it's very hard to tell who is reading uh, Gottschalk's pamphlets because he addresses the reader as dear brother or dear little brother, and clearly it's a text meant to be passed around. It's not necessarily directed, in most cases at least, at any one person, although we do know that he wrote to other famous intellectuals, sought out their um, support um, and so forth. And and one important detail of his message is if you don't accept the truth of twin predestination – then you are clearly damned, right? So the the ideology of it, the political edge of it was, was, you know, to accept Gutschelk as, as an authority um, equal to, or even more important than the bishops themselves. Um, But the monks were people who spent, Not so much time directing the laity, right, on on how they should live their life and and sort of monitoring the clergy, which is what the bishops did, meaning the priests and all the other people underneath them, but the monks were people who lived apart. They lived in, in, in monasteries, and they spent much of their time meditating merely on their own salvation, and many many of the theologians of the time were all monks or there were people who had been educated in a monastic world and then, you know, went to become on bishops themselves. Certainly Gutschalk's opponents were, were these kinds of people in most cases. So I think uh, and and there are other historians who who are arguing that this is a kind of interesting rift between monks and and clerics, or excuse me, monks and bishops in the ninth century. And I think Gottschalk's um, Gottschalk's case shows that. But one thing I wanted to do in the book, and it was very important to me to do this, was to show the Carolingian world not from the perspective of a of a political faction necessarily, because that's been done in various ways, and and there's a lot of great work on that. But to show the Carolingian world from the perspective of one person and a person who sought to undermine a lot of things about that, because, and this is where the microhistory sort of angle comes in, because the people who are different, right, who are different from the majority of, of their peers or their, their enemies, um, they show us something, something unique about that time. And, and suddenly, in the case of Gottschalk's life, the Carolingian Empire looks, looks a little scarier, I would say, and a little more, um, um, well, coercive uh, on, on those who are who are subordinates and, and uh, seem to need discipline, right? Yes. So, yes. yeah.
0: Tell us about Gottschalks, and does he end up in a vat of pitch?
1: No, he didn't make it there. He, I think, you know, of course, you could read my book and say, well, he didn't really mean that. And he knew they wouldn't let him do it. And so it was really a pretty, pretty wily thing to try to pull off. Um, I'm not so sure that's true. Uh, I'm not so sure he wouldn't have gone for it, but he didn't end up that way. He stayed in his monastic prison and um, Archbishop Hinkmar of Reims, who was sort of his his arch enemy later in life rather than the Dark Raven. Uh, when when he when this archbishop learned that Gottschalk was kind of on his deathbed. He sent word to the monastery and said, "Listen, tell Gottschalk he can still get up his ideas, and he can still come back, and he can be buried in the church, uh, in the in the in, in holy ground rather than outside of it, and he'll have a proper funeral and all that sort of thing." And Gottschalk scorned scorned the the request, prayed to God that to help him to not weaken, and and basically went down fighting, which That's is I, yeah, so. Outlaw to the end, you might say.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about you know. I, I think historians of whatever kind they are, whatever whatever their particular field of study is, historians always like to hear other historians talk about sources and and the mm. sort of methods of work. So tell us. You, you've talked a little bit about microhistory, the, the the notion of of looking at one individual life to see how it. Reveals something, or or puts into relief something that might not otherwise be clear to us or obvious to us. Um, talk a little bit about sources, if you would, and and your methods of work in this book.
1: Right. No, that's that's really great, and I, and I had to learn a lot of, of of things to to be able to do this study. So, of course, I read a lot of sources that were not about Gottschalk in order to understand his times. I understood. I, I excuse me. I, I read sources written by people. Words, um very favorable of him, and, and to see what they said about him. And often this, this meant reading um, uh, annals, meaning history texts that describe things happening in the empire year by year, and there would be entries here and there about him. Um, I, I read their theological treatises, which um, most historians are quite um, either terrified of or not interested in them because they they are worried they're too boring for their time and um, you know they're difficult texts but they're filled with amazing amazing things and so I read theological tracts by by Gautschuk's by enemies to see what they said about him and his ideas um, and I also read Gottschalk's writings and the only reason this study was possible is quite a few of them survive and that's very rare for for heretics in general in in medieval Europe but especially for um, troublemakers in the Carolingian world, you know to have so many things from gutschalk 's own pen from his own voice, his ideas as he expressed them, and so what kind of sources did this include? Well, he was a poet, he wrote hymns and and poems and sort of poetic letters to people where he would try to describe his his um, not only his his um, you know convince people to support him but also Describe in, in the hymns, especially his religious message, in terms that were more positive. Right, that that if you do believe this, um, that you will be saved, and, and basically by the end of the hymns, singing the same sorts of things that the that the saints in heaven are singing, suggesting that his prayer is answered and he will be um, achieving salvation or, or being granted salvation. Um, in the afterlife. So, so uh, you know, he's, he, he was a poet, which I found very attractive about him. And uh, also, his prose writing is, is very poetic and, and, and that can make for, for um, difficulties in translating it because it's hard to capture a lot of those sorts of things. And I translated quite a few passages of not only Gottschalk's writings, but other people's uh, in order to show, um, uh, you know, how these, how these um, ideas were expressed. Um, So he also wrote other theological tracts. He wrote Confessions of Faith, which are probably the most poetic. And he, believe it or not, wrote a lot of texts about grammar. Because as a teacher, a monastic teacher, uh, grammar, in other words, meaning how the Latin language was used, how... um, it is possible to express things correctly and, and without being, you know, getting errors into your thinking by using language wrongly. Uh, Gottschalk spent a lot of time, um, describing how language works and would link up his, his, um, his theological arguments to notions of, of correct language. But when you, when you look at these texts, you, you have to sort of see what's in them, not just ideas, but also how he, And and other people would would cut out sort of cut and paste the writings of other people, especially Augustine, but other church fathers and especially biblical texts and weave them, you know, by taking these little bits and pieces, patches and weaving them together with his own language in order to create a message that wasn't really what um, was argued by the individual pieces uh, in their original textual con- um, context right uh so so this meant sort of reading all of these other writings and seeing how Gottschalk 's message was a little bit different was was aimed at his contemporaries rather than than such as you know augustine 's text being aimed at his own contemporaries four centuries before um, but there were there was even a lot more to do than that so for example when when somebody like Gottschalk would would um describe his his theology or describe his relationship to to god uh, the texts are filled with allusions with hidden or not so hidden messages about the meaning of his of, of of his text of his idea and so i would have to go and and track down those writings and see what what is he saying without saying it directly right because these were people who all knew the same books and you could say a lot of things without actually saying it right out. And so there's there's a lot of reading on multiple levels in order to try to understand how his writing would be received by people who knew what he was saying straightforwardly and who knew what he was hinting at by being you know clever in in literary ways. So uh, I guess go ahead.
0: Sorry, no. It it just sounds incredibly pains like incredibly painstaking work.
1: Oh, uh, painful is probably a better <laughs> word, actually. But 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 when you do it, it's it's amazing how you you suddenly start to you think you know, or you hope you're seeing the 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 writings and from from the perspective of people from that moment, you know, and and that's when you start to to get a better look at what somebody like Gottschalk is up to right because he he can include very positive messages to his friends he can include threats he can include accusations that people are 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 um leaving him out to dry he can uh, you know plead with them in various ways and 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 when you see that you see the uh, the amazing uh intellectual and emotional culture of these people who um at first glance might appear as stiff and and using other people's words to say things because they don't have the, the language themselves but instead, you see a rich um, vocabulary and, and literary imagination at work on, on many levels at once.
0: That, that's wonderful. I love the way you describe that. I wonder if you could tell us, too, just briefly, um, is poetry or is grammar, for that matter, are these um, ordinary genres in which to write theology in the period that you, that you work on?
1: Uh, Well, grammar, you know, there were ancient grammar texts that were not Christian, but then there were lots of Christian ones or Christian interpretations of grammar texts. So it did become quite common to sort of link up. uh, Frankly, it was very hard for Carolingian authors to not include religious, theological, or spiritual um, messages in in these kinds of texts. Poetry also, um, although uh, maybe more subtly, so um, the, the, the great revival of Latin poetry writing uh, in the Middle Ages happened uh, in, in the Carolingian period. Anybody who was educated showed their chops by by writing poetry. Um, more poetry would be created later in the Middle Ages. But it's the Carolingian period who, who started that.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. Um... Matthew Gillis, you are a, um, an excellent advocate for your own subject. This has been a very interesting conversation. I've enjoyed every minute of it. I I wonder we we've taken up a lot of your time, and I wonder if you wouldn't mind to just answer one more question for us because I think uh, having listened to you speak about this book, people will will immediately um, want to know what it is that you're working on now. Could, would you mind Would you mind talking about that for a moment?
1: Oh, I, I'd be delighted. Thank you. Um, so so since Gottschalk was a kind of terrifying horrifying figure to a lot of his contemporaries I, I decided that I wanted to find out more about the relationship between theology and poetry and and Carolingian ideas of horror right so I'm kind of interested in horror anyways right and and I noticed that horror sort of terrifying people thinking about what evil does to you as a human being was is, is a very powerful Aspect of, of Carolingian theology and and it is expressed not only in sort of theological texts but often very much so in in poetry because in in the Latin tradition you can really you can really be expressive in poetry in ways that you cannot be in prose texts so so I'm writing a, a book right now uh, at the moment it's called Cosmic Horror in the Carolingian Empire and and it's it's about how um, if we look at some texts we haven't seen before and and ideas we haven't noticed. Uh, maybe we can see how the Carolingian Empire had a much spookier culture than than we've noticed before, and maybe seeing seeing that culture will help us understand um, that world in in a, in a, frankly in, in very different terms than we've been able to do so far.
0: It's fascinating, Matthew Gillis. We've been speaking with you for the last several minutes about your new book, Heresy and Dissent in the Carolingian Empire: The Case of Godshalka Bay, just published very recently this spring, in fact by Oxford University Press. Matthew, it's been a delight. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you very much. It was an honor and a uh, pleasure. Thank you.